Do you know that I actually think I invented the phrase totes my ghost? <laughs> okay, wait. I, I, I want to know why you think that. Well, because I used it before I ever heard anyone use it. And it just kind of came out of me one time. <laughs> it was like a like the Oracle at Delphi. <laughs> I don't know how it disseminated from me to the rest of the world, but I think it did. How did it go from rural Wisconsin to, I don't know, who who said it first? Like, oh, no, Polly Shore? Y- uh, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a good question. It's we fair. need to do an etymology on that. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and I invented the practice of taking a paper plate, filling it with tortilla chips, and melting shredded cheddar cheese over it. Um, I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm an author, (laughs) professor, historian, and I once broke my foot running after a big bag of Cheetos, the crunchy kind. Oh, what a perfect way. (laughs) Today, we're talking about food, that thing we need to live and be happy. We are watching the Netflix series Ugly Delicious and talking about how food is a site for cultural exchange and religious rituals. We interviewed Dr. Roger Nam, Dean of Portland Seminary, about his food adventures and his experience growing up eating Korean food in an immigrant Korean family. In the Kitchen Corner, we'll look up the Daniel diet slash plan slash fast and what that says about Christians and food. Let's eat. Join us. Join us. What's the most serious conflict you've ever had around food, like, or about food? Have you ever had a conflict involving food? Involving? I've had many conflicts involving food. Uh, Yeah, actually. Um, And Pick one that you can talk about. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) I've had many conflicts involving food because, not for the reasons that you might think. I mean, like anyone in this great nation, I have had conflicts with my, you know, arguments with relatives over food mm-hmm. you know like at the table yeah yeah yeah. no i mean conflicts that in, that were that had food as like the was the main character in the conflict or at least uh-huh. was kind of like the object pretext for the conflict yeah okay so i've had so many conflicts around that uh around food because i was in food service for years and years oh, and years i see i was a server mm-hmm. um in nashville tennessee and in oregon mm-hmm. um throughout graduate school so i it's hard to pick just one but something i mean i i for our listeners with children in the car or in your home i can't really give you like the the unedited version because something that people don't know is that it, you may not know is that restaurant culture is like the most profane culture. Yes. Um, so you can't really credibly repeat a restaurant scene that doesn't have copious swear words. <laughs> what about your family? Did your family fight about food? No, not really. You Why know? not? Why not? Well, because um, I don't think we had we did we weren't one of those families that had like a passion for food. Oh. How about you? Did you guys? have conflict over oh all the time really yeah so i'm the oldest of five kids oh seven people in our family five of them were boys like there was a lot of fighting about food about who got (laughs) what and stuff like that oh that's what you mean yeah no i'm the most petty no no i didn't mean anything in particular i i was just meant to evoke whatever came to mind (laughs) and it was it's telling to see what came to yours or the restaurant culture well we should talk about that in a little bit yeah when i think about like conflict over food when i was younger for example another thing that i think i invented by the way what Melting shredded cheese over tortilla chips. 
Uh, you did not invent that. <laughs> okay, but that was a thing that I used to do, and then it yeah. got you know, and then you could put sour cream on it. And I used to delicious. do, and I used to do this, but then like my younger brother would like see it and be like, "I want that." And I used to be oh, so mad because yeah. I like I loved the idea. I treasured the idea that like I would have things that were just for me. Oh well, that makes which sense. was hard a in a big family. family. Yeah. But like, and then people would see it, and then there would be all these hangers on trying to take my stuff. You know, I was like that with my sister, but it was over things like chapstick. So I had a sister and a brother. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure my brother maybe was annoyed with how we ate food, but we didn't have like, we didn't have that large of a family. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we just didn't, um, I'm trying to think if there was any kind of, well, if there's still to this day, if there's a bag of Cheetos, like that's my Cheetos. Um, So I would fight anyone still for those. You mean in your (laughs) house That delicious snack food. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hide. Cheetos are very strange. You get the fingers. The fingers get dirty with the Cheetos. The fingers, you can lick the fingers though. Yeah, there's something about that ritual that goes way back in my small town soul. I think it's one of the oldest rituals known to humankind. (laughs) I invented it. I invented it. (laughs) I invented the Cheeto. Cheeto eating. Yep. Yeah. um, Did your family, when you were growing up, did you eat out in restaurants a lot as a family? No. Oh, yes. Almost never. Yeah. Did you? No, never. Ah! Ah, yes. Once per year, we would go out to celebrate our report cards, and we always went only to one place, which Olive was Olive Garden. No, I don't know. No, that. no, no. We didn't even. I didn't even know that that existed. Oh, okay. That was way that too was high class. That was fancy for my family. Okay. Oh yeah, we would have never gone to the Olive Garden. <laughs> Where'd you guys go? We went to Ponderosa Steakhouse, which is kind of like an old country buffet That's or right. a Golden Corral in that in that lane, mm-hmm. if you want to say. And my brother and I, I remember we always used to like. We didn't know what to do, and we would like bend their forks and spoons into all these shapes and stuff. Oh and, wow! Because like I just remember that. I remember it was always a celebration of the report card, and that was it. That's amazing. Yeah, so we didn't go out to eat a lot either because we just didn't have the money. Um, we went to Taco Bell uh, oh, okay. quite a lot. Yes, and also Dairy Queen. There's a DQ mm-hmm. within walking distance of my house. Um, I, I'm serious. I was really intimidated to be at a restaurant. I, I don't think I was comfortable with being at a restaurant, ordering in a restaurant, yes. like a sit-down restaurant, probably until college. Even to this day, when we have work things and we'll be like at a local restaurant here in Newburgh, I'm like, ooh, we're at a restaurant. I know. It's I fun. feel so fancy. So fun. I'm going to well, get to order my food. I'll tell you one of the places <laughs> that I, like one of my most vibrant memories about food, and yeah. see if you agree, is the church potluck. Yeah, Yeah, we didn't. We weren't we weren't even a part of churches enough when I was younger to have those memories. But I there was a phase then when we when I was after I was married and the, the potluck was a was the thing. Yeah, what do you remember from the church potluck? Oh, man, I love the church potluck because you could have all the food. Like there was always somebody who would buy KFC and like just bring a ton of oh, KFC. Hero, the hero, and I just loved the hero that. you didn't know you needed until that exact <laughs> yeah, moment. Yeah, because KFC always struck me as like fancy fast food. And, you know, <laughs> there was like tons of pies yeah. and the oh, things yeah. that the church ladies, you know, made that we don't really do church potlucks anymore as much. And I'm sure there are lots of health code reasons for that. Mm. But as a child, I just loved it. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I, I suddenly feel this like spiritual enlightening thinking of like Christianity and like what's the founding? What is the first founding moment of Christianity? That's but it, right. is, it is the Food. breaking of bread and the drinking and the saying, you know, eat Jesus says, this is my body, eat. Yeah. And then they eat food. They don't like eat his body. But somehow it's like the idea that when people gather together and eat, you're somehow partaking in this founding moment. You know, it's funny because for our listeners, you may or may not know, we're going to be talking about cooking shows today on the show. The food. The food. And one thing that just struck me as you were saying that is um, how— 
how popular cooking shows are. I've not been super into them mm-hmm. until actually, honestly, in preparation for this. Um, but full disclosure. Full disclosure. We don't care about our topics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to. the show, one of the main shows that we're going to talk about, Ugly Delicious, I actually was a, a really enjoyed that. But to me, I think you could argue it's about a lot more than than food. But, oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, than cooking. But, but I will say that when you were talking about, you know, the role of food in like in religious life, Mm -hmm. um, there's something kind of strange about when you watch somebody cook and then eat food. It's not the same as sitting together in, you know, no, no, enjoying the smells and the conversation and even the arguments about food. Oh, totally. Um, and, but, you know, but it's hard not to get hungry when you watch a show like that. That is true. Ugly Delicious or watching one of my favorites was No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain. That was great. May he rest in peace. Um, Bizarre Foods. Ooh, no, I don't even know Oh, Bizarre Foods is where this guy from Minnesota goes around. This is a travel channel type show. um, And he goes around and basically like eats crickets and stuff. Oh, man. Or goes with like villagers and eats like intestines and things like that. And you get to kind of like, you know, be grossed out or see, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. As a a biblical scholar, so— in in preparation for this, the main show that we watched um, was the show called Ugly Delicious, um, which is a new documentary series on Netflix. Um, and it, in many ways, it's it's not just the story of food; it's like the history of food. Right. As a biblical scholar, what stood out to you watching this show? Well, you know, thinking about you know how important food. Uh, how important food is in terms of founding rituals in the new Testament, of course you have communion. So when churches, so, so if you've ever been to a Christian church and they take communion, they eat the little piece of bread and drink the little piece of, or drink the little bit of juice or wine or whatever, that's, that's a reenactment of the last supper, which is Jesus's meal with his disciples. So there's that, but also in the Hebrew Bible or the old Testament, you have Passover. That's right. That's the founding ritual there. So you could really say bookending the founding rituals on either on, in either testament on either end of the Bible in the Old Testament Passover and in the New Testament Communion or the Last Supper, those are food rituals. They are eating rituals. So to see people together, I mean, there's something kind of like you're just bonding over something so primal, mm. namely eating. When I was in my master's program, which was very much like a history of religions, anthropology, cutting edge, postmodern literary theory kind of thing, I remember just being bewildered by thinking how different people are and just the differences. And there was always this focus on difference, difference, Mm. difference, difference. The older school of religious studies always was focusing on sameness. Uniformity, yeah. Yeah, sameness. And here's what all religions have in common. And then the kind of newer schools that kind of came up were like, no, we should focus on difference, difference, difference. And I remember being so obsessed with that, obsessed, you know, with that idea of difference. And one, and I was thinking one day, is there anything that people just share in common? Is it just all difference? Mm. And I think one thing, there are two things. One, everybody has to breathe. True. Everybody has <laughs> a good point. And everybody has some kind of body. Yeah. And everybody has to eat. True. So people get kind of intense about food. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being, uh, you know, thinking about Passover and thinking about the intensity of, of food for, for ancient people who probably didn't have a lot of food and didn't really eat, definitely didn't eat out, probably. I don't know. If, <laughs> how old is the concept of a restaurant? <laughs> probably pretty old, but. Yeah, but not maybe not that old. There are no restaurants in the Bible. That's a strange thing. But a lot of, but people eating, that's yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you could buy food somewhere. I guess anywhere you buy food, that's technically a restaurant. There you go. 
if, <laughs> if you just eat it there. Like one of the questions Ugly Delicious raises, say in the taco episode, I think that's the second Which one is of their a great season. Episode. Great episode. Yeah. Is is a taco, how do you define a taco? Is a taco anything that you you have a thing and then you wrap it up over other things? Yeah, is like that a, a taco? Sort of a grain based a grain-based thing. thing, and then you put a thing in it, and then you just wrap, fold it. ish thing. Anything. No, anything you put that's inside. True, is, is that, like, what's the platonic form of the taco? Or is a pizza just, like, bread with anything on it? Yeah. Cooked on it? Is that the fundamental idea of the pizza? Yeah, so the, for those of us who have, uh, the, those listeners who haven't seen Ugly Delicious, um, it is a show hosted by a celebrity chef, which I had to look him up because I don't know much about food or David cooking Chang. shows. Yeah, David Chang. Um, who is a really famous restaurateur, apparently, and also um, a really smart guy who created a show that basically features one type of food. And it's primarily, he does a lot of work on its history in the U.S. as well as in other countries. And so the first episode is about pizza, which is really fascinating. And it's about like <laughs> oh, what yeah. constitutes a pizza. And then the second episode is about a, the taco, like what constitutes like the ideal taco. And I don't think they actually weigh in on like, well, I think, well, what do you think? Well, yeah, no, they don't. No, they don't weigh in. And this is, a, see, I want to ask you about this quote. Yeah. About, say about the pizza episode, because you're okay. talking about pizza. And when you talk about pizza, often the thing is like, what counts as an authentic pizza right. and how far back does the pizza go and who invented the pizza? Yeah. These are is questions. Is it Italian? Is it American? Right, is it right, Italian right. American? And here's, here are two quotes from the episode. Uh-huh. I just, just I, I float the quotes and then you react. So one person said when, when talking about what is an authentic pizza, one, I think David Chang, the host said, quote, authenticity is overrated. And then another person said, authenticity in storytelling is important, but authenticity in food is not a thing. I wonder what you think they meant by that how would you reflect on this idea of authenticity? Like when is authenticity be valued and when is it not to be valued? Oh gosh. Okay. This, this takes me back to my graduate school program as well mm-hmm. because going down come, memory lane. Today. Yeah. When I was a young, religious <laughs> girl. Um, but yeah. So in my program, I also came from a very religious studies type program. Like uh, we we loved people like Jay-Z Smith, for those of you religion nerds. Um, and so the idea, the category of authenticity is very, like, rel- religion scholars typically hold that category with a lot of suspicion mm. because it generally gets used to try to, like, create an essential thing that isn't necessarily historically a thing. So, for example, you know, what is the authentic way— to sing this particular song in a in a liturgical setting. Well, how do you even answer that question? Because it changes from culture to culture and from time to time. And a lot of times, like when it comes to religious ideas or practices, um, we just don't know. Like there's no way to really know for sure, you know, what was the original. So, and I mean, I guess to use the biblical studies example, you know, like how do you interpret the Bible in the most authentic way possible? Well, it'd be great if we had the actual piece of paper, actual piece of right. parchment, or what? What were they writing on in the first century? Who cares? You but know, probably spiral bound notebooks. Okay, actually. right. Yeah, if you had the actual peachy <laughs> that Paul was, you know, writing, then we would know that's right. the authentic Paul. Right. Well, it's impossible; it doesn't exist, and or right. you know, to our knowledge. So, um, when I actually appreciated when David Chang said. You know, what what was the authenticity is overrated? Yeah, because I think that that's probably 
I don't see any reason to think that something as primal as food or religion, that they wouldn't hold that in common. That right. there's, it's just ever changing. I mean, just depending on whose kitchen you're in and right. what family traditions and history go into food. And what did you think of it? Well, there's, fr- I think there's, there's freedom. I think I learned from that, just this idea that there's freedom that goes with being quote, inauthentic. Like authenticity right. is very snooty. It's elitist. Like there's a group and so on. And there, like there was a, there was a pizza chef, for example, saying, you know, and he was making this like, kind of like weirdo pizza, like yeah. not a normal pizza, like yeah. some kind of weird pizza. And, you know, he was saying like, basically, yeah, if I were from Italy, I could never make a pizza like this. That's right. Because, you know, I would just be, I would be hidebound with all of like the tradition and all of what it is. So it it raised for me kind of this, yeah, just kind of this difficult dichotomy between tradition and the value that you have in a tradition, how it feels. Traditions are are necessary and wonderful, but then they're also stifling. Yes. And so it's like, they give you a place, but then they also make creativity impossible in some ways like how can you be creative within a tradition or how can you be creative still and with a sense of authenticity because creativity transgresses against purest you know uh, purest ideas of what authentic things are oh i really like that idea because i think that one of the one of my favorite aspects of this show is how david chang reflects on the american experiment mm-hmm. and what this particular cultural context does to traditions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking mostly about food, but he but the fun thing about this show is that food is really like this site for investigating mm-hmm. lots of different aspects of culture. Mm-hmm. And so in, in some ways, I think it's a fun show because it's sort of like how many people approach religious studies. Like you're looking at what people believe in they practice, mm-hmm. in this case around food, but really you're talking about migration and generational changes and technology and how all these things, you know, change over time. The the pizza episode is so fun because there are all these different types of pizza represented. Like to me, one of the really compelling ones, uh, it's the the first guy they interviewed, and I'm gonna totally blank on his name, but they're they're these two um two pizzerias or pizza places, pizza shops. I don't know. Um, I think they're called pizza factories. Pizza factories. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever they are. I just think that's what they're called. But anyway. Oh, really? No, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> I was like, wow, you did some research for this. <laughs> no. um, but the two pizza places yeah, yeah. Um, that are historic, like have connections to immigration, right? So like families mm-hmm. coming over from Italy and mm-hmm. adapting and then creating these really amazing food artifacts that live on today yeah. versus the guy, the Italian guy, who's like the arbiter of like, this is what constitutes an actual pizza. Right? Right. And he's so serious about it. Gatekeeping. You got to love. Yeah. some classic gatekeeping no matter, <laughs> no matter what you do. So my first job was actually in a restaurant. Really? Yeah. I was a dishwasher in the Aww. restaurant that my mom worked at all the whole time that I was growing up. How, what kind of restaurant was it? It was kind of like, a, you know, it was like, it was like one of these kind of upper Midwest restaurants that's kind of dark with a lot of nautical imagery in it. Oh, nice. And we had kind of like lobster and steaks and stuff. It was kind of like surf and turf. Surf and turf. It was a very much a surf and turf, like date night, kind of nicer place, but but not like super nice, like still within the reach of the common person. Okay. So what you yeah. had was a restaurant full of like kind of people who were slightly uncomfortable eating out, Aww. eating out, but in a nicer setting. Nice. That's often what it was. But in the kitchen, I remember things like, you know, throwing of pots and pans, right. the screaming, 
There was an incident. All the swears. Yeah, all the sw- <laughs> there, there was an incident where where one of the one of the prep cooks like cut his finger really bad like oh, on a holiday yeah. and was bleeding over thing and they were just they were wiping off blood with a towel like right before the food went out <laughs> kind of stuff. Like I'm laughing because I've been that person. So I I waited tables at this Italian restaurant for years and years mm-hmm. during graduate school, and. The servers, we didn't do any of the prep except for one thing. We cut this really delicious bread. Oh. And there was, like, the servers had their own little food cutting mm-hmm. station. And one time I cut my hand oh, really badly. brutal. Yeah, yeah. So I actually have firsthand experience with that. It's The panic is <sighs> is sort of generative. It's like life-giving. Yeah. You just, you have, your you adrenaline kicks you have to You have to figure something out. You gotta, I got to stop bleeding before moment, I get to the table. <laughs> It's like, yeah. ha, yeah, I remember a mother, a particular Mother's Day where I was a, I think I was a busboy or I was assisting one of the, one of the waitresses. I might've even been assisting my mom, but I did two things on that Mother's Day. One was I dropped a tray of waters on a mom in a dress, <laughs> just flat out. That's awesome. She took it pretty well. Um, <laughs> the other thing I did was I broke a glass in the ice bin. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> I've done that before because you have to so, empty the entire yeah, bin. Yeah, yeah, that was a hard day. It was a hard oh day. Oh my gosh. You know, um, I used to reflect on the Bible while I was waiting tables. Not really? because I'm particularly holy, but because um, the because Stephen, the character Stephen in mm-hmm. the New Testament, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um, like deacons were, Book of like Acts. they waited on tables. Right. And I, I really did rely on, because it is hard work. Like you were putting yourself in that position. Yeah. Like, like yeah. you were reenacting scripture in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like you were, you are very holy. What are you talking well, about? Well, I only, it was like a kind of a mode of survival because people can be so mean That's to true. you when you're waiting tables. And so I had to kind of find some way of imagining what I was doing that had some sort of greater, you know, purpose. <laughs> so, <laughs> if someone wanted to punish you by making you eat one particular kind of food, what would that pun- what would that food be to punish you? Oh my gosh, I need to think about that. Uh, do you like everything? Mm, probably like oysters. Really? Uh, yeah, I Why not? My, oh, come it's on. the texture. Ugh. Oh. How about you? Oh, I, I love oysters so uh, much. Uh. I could eat a lot of oysters. You know what someone would punish me? To, what? If I were to be punished, it would be eating candy corn. <gasps> I like candy corn. Yeah, you do. But, it's, you know. <laughs> There's a whole group of people I understand who don't. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, what is the candy corn? Well. What is it? I think it's important not to think about that too hard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> what about What about the classic last meal? I, you know, it's, what's hard about a last meal is then you're thinking about like what your life would be like if you knew you were having your last meal. Exactly. And, I get then it beca- and then it becomes very difficult, right? Yeah. To think about that. Like, could you enjoy anything if you knew it was your last meal? Well, I think a lot of the people, like, you know, um, no, probably I would be, I'd probably, my stomach would be in knots. I wouldn't want to eat anything. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess it depends. You know, we're still in what many might call the prime of life. If we were 95, we might feel differently. We might be right. excited about it, I guess. But I often, like watching these type of shows is fun because I have a feeling that those folks know exactly what they'd eat because oh. they're like so they're such experts. Yes, yes. In the act of eating. Well, and you know, you, you talk about thinking about it too much, like with the candy corn or the last meal. Like, if you're a chef, is it like are you just constantly thinking about food? Like, can you really enjoy? It? But they seem to. I I feel like as 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 religious studies scholars generally, we would have a lot to learn from chefs because. They yeah. they know a lot about their thing, but they enjoy it all the more. They do, and they like to watch other people do it too. Yes, which is weird. Which is weird <laughs> for because, religious studies. W- yeah, for re- religious studies, people are kind of infamous for 
the more you know, the more disenchanted, you know, maybe the text or the, the tradition becomes, um, maybe point. at its worst, you know. So I wonder how that kind of in, infectious joy over food could be, you know, learned or, or, or practiced. I love that. So now you have watched more cooking shows, I think, than I have. Like, is there a particular show that stands out to you as yeah. kind of embodying that joy? Oh, the joy of the food. Well, Bizarre yeah. Foods, I think, does for sure. Okay, yeah. Um, I think in a perverse way, those shows that Gordon Ramsay hosts. Uh, like I love Gordon Ramsay. The old one that I think of is Hell's Kitchen, mm-hmm. where they had the contestants. Mm-hmm. But it's not so much that there's joy there, but just that, you know, it's it's there is joy. There's like an intensity there about uh-huh. food and about excellence and just seeing, you know, these kind of like middling chefs trying to make it and then somebody just berating them. It's just great. But, you know, Bizarre Foods always kind of took me down that. That lane of like feeling that kind of joy or, you know, really like any cooking show. Like you can just watch like Julia Child or Giada or something. My daughter loves Giada That's for some so reason. That's so sweet. Um, but, you know, you just because – and and again, I think like a lot of TV shows – I mean, one of the great powers of TV is the ritual power of TV. Like right. the same things happen. You know it's going to work. You know you're not going to watch – when I cook, I don't know if it's going to work. Oh, yeah. When, I have no idea. But when you watch yeah. Giada at home making like pasta, you know it's going to work. You know, you know, and so that's that's helpful, I think. So I feel it's, there's comfort. I think there's joy in just thinking about good food. Yeah. I, so, okay, I watched in, in preparation because we pre- we prepare a lot for these shows. Taking you behind the you scenes. As you can tell. Taking you behind the scenes. <laughs> this show. I stayed up late last night watching the Great British Baking oh, yeah. Challenge. Or no, no, Great British Baking, baking Show. Baking Show. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, my daughters love that show too. We've seen oh. a lot of episodes of that. Well, it kind of stressed me out. It's a stressful show. Yeah, these people are are really gifted. Obviously, way more talented than I am in the in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and um, and then they give them these impossible tasks, and like <laughs> they, they stress out, and they seem like very nice, normal people, right? As a whole, um, so I I don't know why that one. You know what I think it is is like British mean. Like yeah. Gordon Ramsay, I like because yeah, yeah. he's like over the top aggressive. Mm-hmm. But there's something he's kind of teddy bearish too. I feel like he'd give you a hug. Oh, totally. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the judge on the the Great British show, there are two. There's the the woman who's the cookbook queen. Mm-hmm. They call her the queen of something, and I can't remember her yeah. name. She's very sweet. Yeah. And she's got this grandmotherly. The older kind woman. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. Very grandmotherly. But like the middle-aged British guy is so mean. He's stone cold. He is mean, but He's he does it in cold. the most British way. I, I had a British professor once who, like, um, in my mind, I had imagined he'd be kind of like – you know, C.S. Lewis or something because I didn't know a lot of British people. Sure. Um, but really, he was so mean because he would just say the meanest things, but in a really like bland <laughs> and polite way. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the great British baking show to me was just pure stress. Whereas Gordon Ramsay's like, it's yeah. sort of like fun to watch him. That's true. And you kind of know it's fake. Whereas maybe the, 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 the great British baking show, how do you think you'd do on a show like that? Oh, I'd fail so badly. But yeah. you know what show I wouldn't fail at? would be the Gordon Ramsay show where he rehabs the restaurant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd be one of the servers. What They'd get catch me a lot on B-roll, rolling my eyes, probably. <laughs> At the owners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually learned how to cut an onion, dice an onion properly from watching Hell's Kitchen. Oh, really? Because like, he, was, he, he was yelling at somebody. Well, I think you have to kind of cut it in half and then you lay it flat and then you oh. cut it one way and then you can just turn it while keeping it together. And then go chop, 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 And then chop, chop, chop it the other way. And then suddenly then it all falls apart yeah. in these little cubes. You're, you and your spouse are pretty good cooks though. You guys. Well, I, I think we like to eat out too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Greetings, weirdos. Uh, we are here with one of the one of the best friends of Weird Religion, Dr. Roger Nam, who is Dean of Portland Seminary at George Fox University and also Professor of Biblical Studies. He is a Hebrew Bible scholar or no, no. You yeah, are yeah. okay. I couldn't remember. I was like, "Am I saying that?" And also a specialist in Ezra Nehemiah, and he is the person who recommended first recommended the show Ugly Delicious to me. Um, and so we're really excited to have you. Welcome to the show, Dean. Thank Roger you. Nam. Great. In, in studio too. Great in to be studio. here. Rare to have people in studio here in this in this weird space. Yes, and on the theme of food. Dr. Nam brought us um, really delicious um, homemade <laughs> ice cream sandwiches from Stores, which is a barbecue um, place really close to our university. Like artisanal. They are delicious. Ice cream sandwiches. Yes, we're so, having Christmas Brian, cream cream. You were actually serious. You wanted to eat this on air. I want to eat already, it. No, I want to eat it while we're talking. <laughs> I already <laughs> ate mine. I'm I know. That's why I, started, I, I did not know you were I told, serious about I told it. Every, I told these two. I said, don't eat it yet. We have to eat it while we're talking. <laughs> I finished yeah. mine. I have like and one. And looked bite. at me like skeptically, like, what was that look about? Well, okay, I'll tell you what it's about is yeah. that my dad hates hearing people eat. And so I was having this um, weird childhood flashback. Well, people, you know, Brian's dad Sorry, clearly dad. didn't have that experience because he looks pretty comfortable mm-hmm, right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think you got to, I think there's certain things you got to put up with in life. And one of those things is hearing other people eat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Roger, what's your favorite food? Pizza. <laughs> well, nice. that's just delicious. Is it really? Yeah, I think so. Uh, what kind? I like them all the thin, the thick, Chicago, lots of stuff, like the the white sauce. Ooh, you know, yeah. I, I like it all. Alfredo. Then you must have really liked the first episode of Ugly Delicious because it's about pizza. Yeah, like I was shocked because I— David Chang's this kind of mega celebrity high chef, and we know about him. We read about him. We see him on TV. And to see him, like, really contend for Domino's, that was ah, a real, I love that part. That was right. a real shocker. Right, <laughs> right. He is, they're not snobs. That's the thing. I loved—I actually really loved that because there's a scene in the in the documentary where he orders Domino's to, like, this fancy pizza place, and they all eat it. And I think they liked it. Yeah, and he's talking to his celebrity chef bud, say, "This is isn't this great? Tell me this isn't a great combination right here." Mm-hmm. Well, and the guy goes, "Well, it is good, but it's not pizza." <laughs> I know that's such a hipster response. Let us pose to you, Roger, a question we were talking about earlier about authenticity that that the show Ugly Delicious raised, just about like food cultures. Like David Chang said, "quote Authenticity is overrated," and another character was talking about how. You know, authenticity maybe like in storytelling or something like that or in friendship is good, but like with food, it is not to be desired. Reflect on that quote. Do you think is authenticity overrated in food food cultures, do you think? Yeah. Well, food is evolving and it changes. And uh, David is speaking from a second generation Korean American place. His parents immigrated. They created what they could have Korean food, but the options weren't there mm. back, even in the major cities like New York or DC. And so they had to create what they could of Korean food. And that's kind of how this assimilation, this fusion begins. It's actually kind of weird. And one thing I really related with David is just the way that Korean food became so universal and ubiquitous Mm -hmm. in the last decade even. It's just kind of weird for us to see because it was strange food when we were 
growing up. That's fascinating. You mean growing up in a Korean family, you didn't see Korean food like out, like you didn't see Korean tacos or things like that. I, I was literally in Whole Foods two days ago with my kid, and there was kimchi and something. I don't, I don't even remember what it like stuffing or something. It was <laughs> oh, just, interesting. It's always so weird still for me yeah. to see kimchi at Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and Fred Meyer's and all these mm-hmm. grocery stores. Yeah. Do you think about like how that must be? So different for your children. So if it was weird when you were a child and now your children is just growing up and it's Korean food is kind of like the it's super hip. Yeah. Koi, the hip koi food. fusion. Koi fusion. That's yeah. right. That's amazing. Yeah, it's Taco delicious. cart. Owned yeah. by Koreans. And yeah, so my kids grew up, they're growing up in Oregon. They are uh, 10 and 15 right now, and they've always shamelessly loved Korean food. It's it's kind of different for us. Like it was, you know, David talks about it a little bit in the episode. It's embarrassing. It kind of mm. smells funny. It's very garlicky. <laughs> it's uh, a lot of it's fermented. A mm. lot of it uh, just smells different from mm. the American kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it was always kind of embarrassing. You have to explain it a little <laughs> bit. It was deemed disgusting, and we just never knew that until we went to lunch at the elementary school and we we popped open some you know, little sardine with a fish head. Mm. And that's like super gross, apparently. <laughs> right. Oh, you yeah. didn't know until that moment. Yeah. Yeah. It was just normalized for us. What was the, you spent a year when you were on sabbatical with your family in Korea. What was that like in terms of being a food odyssey for you? Was it, did it feel normal? Did oh, it my feel goodness. strange? Oh my, okay. So, you know, Yelp, right? You know, yeah. Yelp. Yelp, yes. So imagine Yelp with like a delivery app and you have the reviews, but you just, you have a menu and just press a few things on your phone. Within 20 minutes, they deliver everything. They've charged your card. And then an hour later, they pick up the dishes from you. Yeah. So they they don't give you disposable dishes. They give you real dishes. Yeah. And then they they, pick them up. You just put them outside your apartment door and they pick them up. It's like like room service at your house in a hotel. And they have multiple apps like that. That that compete with each other. It is pretty amazing. So before, so if you want to do like Chinese food, you'll get like 20 different restaurants. You'll read the reviews, get their menus, get their pricing. And you just choose one, and you they deliver. Whoa. Yeah. So that Odyssey was pretty good. It was good to see my kids, you know, experience a, a wider range of Korean food. Mm. Obviously, Oregon doesn't have the same types right. of choices. Uh, it's interesting where they went to school. They went to an international school for kids of Korean descent. Mm-hmm. And they had both Western and Korean options every day for lunch. Huh. And for them to explore, you know, what cuisine was like in Korea. Wow. Now, I know you've done a lot of writing because you— You've worked on Ezra Nehemiah on biblical communities and and um, diasporas and communities in transition. When you were experiencing, you know, your sabbatical life, or even when you maybe were watching Ugly Delicious, did you reflect on you know like the biblical stories about like ancient Israel at all, or I don't know it. Yeah, yeah. I actually I didn't start sabbatical on Ezra Nehemiah. I ended up there, and a lot of that was oh, because cool. of our return to Korea. So Ezra Nehemiah, if you don't know, like Ezra begins, they have um, uh, the the temple was destroyed, and Cyrus comes and he conquers the Babylonians, and he says, "Hey, y'all can go back to your lands and build your temples." And that happened to be forty seven years after the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple. So it happened in five thirty nine, and then. I went on sabbatical in 2014. My mom and dad actually immigrated in 1967. So wow. they released quotas on Asians immigrating to the States in the mid-60s. My mom and dad were part of that first big wave of East Asians. And so it ended up, I returned to Korea on sabbatical with my third generation, Korean-American kids, 47 years after my mom and dad had immigrated. And so 
I was going to write a book on diaspora economies, and there is so much about identity that I just witnessed in my own kids wow. playing in the neighborhood with other Korean kids and meeting relatives that were still in Korea and speaking the Korean language and enjoying their food. That made me think there's a lot in identity, and I think it's a totalizing force in interpreting this this particular book of the Bible. Wow, that's really amazing. I I sort of want to want to ask Brian a question about that too because I know your daughters like do they like how does food relate to your multicultural family Oh yeah well so my so my my father-in-law is immigrated to the United States from Puerto Rico when he was 5 years old like on the lap of his I think one of his aunts or his cousins and when he met my mother-in-law who's like a white as white can be woman from Oklahoma one of the first things that she had to do when they, you know, were married is she had to learn how to make Puerto Rican rice and beans from my father-in-law's mom. Wow. You know, what, so you a, imagine that. what a ritual that but she's actually, been. no, she's really good at it though now. And of course then Susan, uh, you know, grew up, my wife grew up making that. And then that just became a part of our food life, you know, and our daughters love rice and beans too. But I mean, that's, that's kind of like the main thing. That's like the kimchi of Puerto Rico. Hmm. It's like rice and beans. Hmm. And so, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know that we ever made like such a big deal about it, but we did like have, like last Christmas, we had like rice and beans on Christmas day. Like that's the meal basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and empanadas and things like that. So, um, or we had some, some kind of Puerto Rican thing. I forgot, but rice and beans is like the staple, you that's know, that we had. So yeah, that's, I mean, Ugly Delicious makes this point over and over again about how food travels and about how food is history. Like food is never just itself. Um, and I think, you know, even points about assimilation, like, if if a conquered people comes in and brings its food, it's not just that one side gets affected, but both sides get affected. Everybody gets affected in a food clash. You know, everybody eats each other's food. Hmm. Right. There's a there's a section Ezra that Ezra talking a little bit about food and identity. Those those worlds in the Bible, as you know, Brian, aren't often mixed together in biblical text. The exception would probably be some of the like kosher laws that have been talked about since the 70s about what constitutes identity and what constitutes what we eat. But there's one verse in Ezra that kind of relates. And like Ezra is such a closed text in a certain way. Like they're really sharp in defining who is in Mm. and who is outside the community. And they do this through building a wall. They do this through lists. They do this through the language that they speak. But there's one kind of random verse that kind of subverts that. It's in Ezra 6.21 it actually talks about the Passover. Mm-hmm. The Passover is a meal that you celebrate, but the Passover is celebrated by everyone, not just the Judeans that mm. return, which is a real contrast to most of Ezra and Nehemiah. Anyone from any nation that worships the Lord is invited to celebrate in the Passover. And I didn't wow. even think about that until talking with you two, that this is a meal that they're celebrating together, a Passover celebration. That is extraordinary. Do you think that, is there is there any sort of, meal that we do. I mean, often people think about Thanksgiving, although that has a problematic history. Um, But is there any sort of common meal that we all experience that might be that open? In Christian culture? Maybe, or American. I I don't know that. I I didn't... So the Korean church is different. Like, so when my parents grew up, or when when I grew up with my parents just immigrating, the church was an all-day affair, and it smelt like a Korean place. Mm. The church <laughs> smells like Korea. And so this was a part, it's kind of hard to believe now. We grew up in San Jose. There were just a handful of Korean kids, like less than five in the entire school. But the Sunday was where we can go to church, and we can kind of speak Korean. Not we, mm. my parents, I should say, the first generation. And there was so much food, and it was part of every service. So it wasn't a special service or 
a special celebration, but it was just the regular ritual every Sunday. You have lunch there and you have Korean food every single time. And it was just part of a way, I think, for the Korean immigrants to kind of get through and navigate their kind of challenging life, mm. be with each other. And there's also business opportunities as well. When they gather together more ways that they can combine resources and kind of give each other positions and jobs and kind of talk about each other's businesses. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, do churches where like do second generation churches or churches with populations that ha- include more second generation, do they still keep up that that eating together, the all-day church experience? Not the second-generation church. The mm. first generation, like still today, 2018, there's still tons of Koreans immigrating here and coming, and they still keep up that. So our church has Korean meals pretty much every Sunday, mm. special ones on Thanksgiving and holidays. But the second generation is different. We grew up with more options. We grew up with an affinity for all sorts of different foods. So that isn't quite there. I, I do see a lot of the second generation hold on to that heritage where they might uh, depart from other parts of their Korean identity. And I think part of it, it was just the rise of Korean food in the American culture. Yeah. It's just such a popular, well-known, and well-regarded food now. That's really interesting because we were talking earlier about um, potluck culture, church potluck culture. Yeah. Um, and I grew up in a working-class community where we had tons of church potlucks. But um, I think that that type of culture in you know my particular role— American context is on the decline, which I, to me seems very sad because there was something kind of wonderful about that. Mm. I mean, I, I was a pastor's kid, but lots of kids in the church, they just grew up where you'd spend hours just running around the church, eating, you know, whatever. <laughs> it, whatever they give yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the last potluck that I attended or one of the last ones that I've been at, I don't want to say which church or even where this is or how long ago, <laughs> but there were so few people that actually brought food that the church ended up raiding its own food pantry bank <laughs> to put out food oh, for no. the potluck. <laughs> Well, I will say, I think part of that- People didn't bring anything. People didn't, people weren't doing it. They weren't doing the thing. Part of it has to do, I think, with the idea that there are more two-income households. So it's Mm. like, you know, I mean, when I was growing up, there were, many of the families in the church had more traditional gender roles. So like the women would like cook the stuff and bring it. Right, right, right. And so, you know, speaking as one of the women now, I'm just like- oh, let's go to the store because you're just tired, yeah. you know? Yeah, nobody wants to do anything that's even remotely a hassle, I think. That's true, really. too. <laughs> Anymore. That's true, it's just, too. Life is too. We need, we need that app, that app you're talking about. It's a pretty yeah. amazing app, yeah. Where you can just clickety-click, click Holy stuff. smokes, yeah. Why can't we import that? I, what, I think it'd be a great idea. What kinds of Korean food do you think Americans should be eating that they're not eating right now? There are a lot of, like, really good marinated vegetables that are, like, healthier and that last. There are a lot of, like... People think of kimchi, you have your idea. They're like literally over 100 types of kimchi. And I think oh, Americans need to expand their kimchi wow. repertoire and stuff. Yes. There's a museum of kimchi in Seoul. Really? Like, so yeah, what's literally. so when I think of like like when I ask for kimchi on my Korean taco at Koi Fusion, what's what's that kind? Is that That's the, the main staple kind of this kind of Napa cabbage. Is this very fermented? Very vinegary. The, yeah, I yeah. love it. So you have it with different vegetables. You have different uh, fermentation processes, different levels of spiciness, some that are completely white and not spicy at all. Mm, I had no idea. Okay, so different kinds of kimchi. 
Marinated I, vegetables. I think what we need to do is just do an episode from Seoul. I think that's the conclusion we should come yes, to. Yes, that's true. That's <laughs> And maybe we could go from Seoul to, and, and you've traveled a lot, Roger, just even in your capacity as dean and as a scholar. Like, what are some of the places you've traveled where you just, when you think about the food, you just go into a food coma revelry? <laughs> this is weird. This, this probably sounds a little weird, but my, by far my favorite is Seoul, Korea. Like, that's I just awesome. like going oh, nice. back and I'm just so comfortable. There's so much I can eat and it's there all the time. It is a great food city, but I just don't get sick of Korean food. It's it's fine for me. I don't know how much you'll like it by day seven. I don't well, know. We'll I've got a question. <laughs> like, if that's the best, what is the low point of food culture? Like, places where you— Because you travel a lot. You've yeah, been to a lot of different places. Yeah. Okay, so I never—like, I just enjoy anything. I don't— um, but I will say when I go to places without a lot of Asian-y food, like mm-hmm. after a few days, the first thing I'll do when I come home, I didn't even realize this until I thought about that. As soon as I come home, after like five or six days in Wisconsin or Indiana, mm. I will-, I will <laughs> My fair home state. Yeah, that's Wisconsin. Right, that's right. Which is great. Well, but you know. I will raid the refrigerator for something Korean-ish. Like something with taste. Or something something like, with taste in it. You're like, I've been to the Golden Corral. Six times. <laughs> yeah. It's time for me to get something else. <laughs> yeah. I've never been to the Golden Corral. Uh, yeah. Don't don't go to the Golden Corral. It's one of those places you walk out and it's like you feel guilty somehow, even though you haven't done a moral wrong. It's just you feel bad. I've well, never been to Cracker Barrel. Is that what it's called? Oh, Cracker yeah, Barrel. Yeah, yeah. You know, Cracker Barrel's a breakfast. I, yeah. I would say it's a breakfast. I've never thing. been to Shoney's. Oh, <laughs> no reason to do that. No reason to do my that. My wife, my wife Anything wants, else like Denny's? My, my wife wants my mythology of like other places to eat that I just never been to that <laughs> seem Rural like, white culture. Yeah, <laughs> rural white. Susan once broke up with a boyfriend in a Shoney's. She did? <laughs> yeah. That sounds that's, about right. That's a country song waiting that's to be written. That's what you do. You just take him to Shoney's and it's like, I'm yeah. sorry, this isn't happening. She sat me down at a Shoney's. Shoney's. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. Now I need to go to Shoney's. She pushed, know, pushed, pushed the totally napkin true. away. You know, I mean, you said it's not committing a sin. I would actually counter that because there is not one buffet type restaurant, speaking of like Golden Corral, that I have not overeaten in. Because mm. I'm like, this costs $9. You got to get your money's $12. worth. $12. Poverty culture. Exactly. <laughs> Go into the, <laughs> you got it. You got to make it worth it. See, the Koreans out do like, they'll bring plastic pockets and stuff. That they'll, is awesome. Yeah. Great idea. Roger, it's been so cool to have you in here. I'm so happy to talk about this. I'm so hungry now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You've for given us time. desires that we cannot fulfill. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. And I will go uh, replenish my ice cream sandwich somewhere else. <laughs> oh, thank man. you for adding your biblical expertise to our conversation. And thanks for the ice cream sandwich. You're welcome on both. Most of all. So um, that was a really fun conversation with Roger Nam, mm-hmm. and I had, you know, I wish we could have talked to him for a lot longer, but he's a busy guy. He's got things to do. Gotta let him go. The world to run, our worlds to run. <laughs> um, but one of the things that he talked about, it made me think of an observation from my own life that I, I wanted to ask you about. He was talking about something that he shared in common with David Chang was this sense of embarrassment because the food that he was raised with was different from mainstream American food. Right. Um, and it it made me think about like, have I ever been embarrassed or ashamed of food that I had? Oh. And I, I did have an experience of, with that for different reasons, obviously. Um, when I, and I don't think I've ever actually shared this publicly, Ooh. but yeah. So I was raised in a, in a lower socioeconomic class 
than average, much mm-hmm. lower. And for but for a short time I went to a private school and I remember like the politics of lunchtime. Oh. And it was like, you know, the big thing when I was growing up, I don't know if this made its way to Wisconsin. Maybe, maybe you invented it. I don't know. <laughs> but um was trading things. Like you oh, want to just trade things for yes. lunch. No, the trade is very old. Yeah, lunch trading. As old as as old as time trading. Yeah. I know there's stories like in Little Women about it. So it's obviously old. But um They trade lunch items and Little Women? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, okay. There's a whole little plot point about Amy. and Anyway, but um, <laughs> so, but I never had food that was good or expensive or trendy enough for anyone to want to trade with me. You put your wares out there in the market and people just said. Yeah, because no. I mean, we just didn't have like Lunchables, never had Lunchables, you know, because those things are actually pretty expensive. And I remember feeling very embarrassed about that because when you're like in the fourth or fifth grade, that's actually you know, something that and why is were, big. And why were Lunchables such a desired thing? I don't like, know. They're disgusting. To me, it seemed like the coolest thing ever, but it's like the cheapest junk, but like you get to put it together, I guess. Yeah. It's like cheap, expensive junk. Cheap, I don't know. Yeah. It's confusing. You know, when I think of shame related to food for myself, I could think of a couple of things actually, but one is, well, yeah. So school lunches, that school There's lunches. There's like this whole politics, oh, right? School lunches brings up Shame, yeah, totally. <laughs> School just brings up shame. Yeah, when I was when I was when I was younger, my family qualified for reduced price lunch oh, tickets. Right. Okay, and at points, free lunch tickets we got, and so there was always a kind of a, you know, going to the office to get those, but not paying for them. I always felt super weird about that. And then the other the other thing that came up constantly was because I was a big I was a big boy. Mm. I was as big as I am now, tall as I am now. When I was in like sixth or seventh grade. Whoa, you're pretty tall. How tall are you? Yeah, like six. I used to be like 6'3". Now I'm like 6'1 and three quarters. That's really tall for a sixth grader. I know. Really seventh grade, I think I reached my peak. And it was like, I just, I was a growing child. And I like, I just needed to eat all the time. And I was always the biggest. And it was like the school lunches were just never enough food. So I think I was always trying to like hawk for other kinds of food. But the other thing, the thing that came to my mind first when you brought this up was just that when I eat, and this is true now today, I just, I eat really fast. I'm just a very fast eater, and I think I, I was never self-conscious about it, never even realized it until you start to eat more socially and get a little older, and you go out to eat with others, and you get in college. People are like, dude, why do you eat so fast? And I think I realized in at Easter, I think, in 2000 and must have been 2007, maybe, we yeah. had my grandparents, my mom's parents, over um, to our apartment where we lived in Boston, and I realized watching them eat, I was like, look at how fast they're eating. They just ate so fast and it kind of like unlocked for me in this neurological family moment, just memories of knowing that like my grandma in the house that she grew up in, they actually went hungry at times. Was it like depression era? Yeah. Or at least post-depression era. And and there may have been problems, you know, in terms of just like what the food culture was in that family and whether the, my, you know, whether my great grandma really provided, you know, food in a certain way. And, and my grandma became kind of like the the food matriarch of the family. Probably almost everybody's families has wow. a, a grandma who's like the food mm-hmm. matriarch. But like my grandma definitely is in in my family. Um, and she- She set that culture. She kind of set this tone, yeah. Just like a, an intensity, like a rabid intensity about food and eating, especially her baking is like so good. But I think that idea of eating really fast is like a kind of like a family thing that just, and maybe it was also having a big family, but yeah, just feeling like I was just some total- idiot creep like just eating too fast but then seeing them it was like comforting but also kind of like mysterious like thinking about the way that these food things just go unnoticed but you inherit them almost like you inherit your genes or your hair color or your yeah. eyes and food and just how we consume it how we prepare it 
it's so powerful. Like the the idea of, you know, you bring up like the food matriarch and it mm. made me think of a friend of mine whose husband um, is from Mexico and kind of the big moment of her life when she was ex- accepted into his extended family was when she learned how to make tortillas oh. with like the women of the family, oh, yeah. you know? And I think that, yeah, you don't realize like the the person who holds that is a really powerful person because so much of family business and then just social business happens like right there at that table. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's biological. It's ancient. You know, it's, it's, I, I heard once like a psychologist, a behavioral psychologist talking about ways you can kind of like partly trick someone into falling in love with you. And one of the ways they said is be a food provider for that person. Oh, that's just, so creepy just make sure you, make sure you're in a position <laughs> where you're giving that person food, where you, where they see you just at a subliminal, deep gut animal level as providing them food. Wow! And if someone sees you that way, or if you see someone that way, you need to be with them. That is so weird. <laughs> That's why my husband's always bringing me Cheetos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll love me forever. You'll love me forever. You can't leave me. Um, you can't leave me because I'm the food provider. So, you know, so that's a trick. Don't say this show isn't practical. Yeah. We give you tips for living. Don't say it. Helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Kitch corner, kitch, kitch corner. Play kitch, the kitch, kitch corner. Play the kitch corner music. We don't <laughs> we have just any. We made it up. We don't have any. Kitch corner. Kitch, 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 kitch. Corner, corner, corner. <laughs> We're lacking content today, clearly. Yep. Um, so anyway, oh, mm-hmm. okay. So how about this? How about this? How about for the kitch corner today? Mm-hmm. How about we, ex- I mean, so we're talking about food. Yeah. We got to go food, but we got to go kitschy. We got to go Christian. Christian kitsch food. I'd say we go, have you ever heard of the Daniel diet? Oh, yes. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Yeah. In fact, I have a really vibrant childhood memory associated with the Daniel. Vibrant. Daniel diet. Yeah. Well, it was uh, the Daniel fast then. Mm. This was. um, Are they related? Is the Daniel diet and the Daniel fast something separate? I don't know. Are they? I thought they were. We'll find out. Okay. We're going to find out. We're going to investigate here. We are Mm -hmm. investigative. Mm Mm-hmm podcasters. Yep. We're uh, like a true crime podcast yep. suddenly. Yep. All of a sudden we're Googling it right now. Where did the Daniel diet come from? Yeah. Well, okay. So my childhood memory of it is in a charismatic context where there was a guy who is, he, his, his name, well, I won't, I'll, I'll change his name. His name was Don mm-hmm. and Don was um, always perpetually doing these Daniel fasts, which was according to him, no meats, no sweets. Okay. So I guess grains and vegetables, but he was not a very good faster. And he was a um, he was a teacher at a a little Christian school that I went to, and he would go and like bum Twizzlers off of like students eating lunch and mm. saying like I'm fasting, I need a Twizzler. So yes, overtly yes. breaking it, but that's my my most like. My earliest memory of the Daniel Fast was someone breaking it, basically. Was was or is fasting a, a serious part of your spiritual experience? Growing up, yeah, for sure. How about uh, you? Not really. And, I, you know, I, I kind of had a problem. There was a period where I think I tried fasting, but it was it's very difficult. Mm. And I think I started to associate it too much with, like, weight loss. 
Oh, right. And it got like kind of confused in my mind to the point where it was like I was constantly thinking about that. Kind of like the diet, the Daniel diet, when in the scriptures, the story is about a fast. So now what is this? Okay, so what is this about? This is about, and we got to look this up. I'm going to pull this up. This This is a book of the Bible called Daniel. Yes. This is where the Daniel diet gets its name. Um, Daniel and, and some other people are said to have been um, people who were taken away from their homeland, um, taken away in exile, and they get brought into this foreign king's court to kind of serve him in some official capacity. Um, and so as part of this chapter, um, this guy Daniel, along with his friends, Daniel, and I'm here I'm reading from the Bible, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, for those following along at home, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. So they're worried if the, so Daniel and his friends must be worried about Jewish dietary law. Mm -hmm. They don't want to have to eat like these rich kind of foods and things that this foreign king would have them eat if it crosses the dietary lines of Jewish ritual food law. Right. But then the guy who's taking care of them is like, you, you have to eat or I'm going to look horrible and you have to be strong. So what do they do? They, um, he says, Daniel says to them, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat or water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat us in accordance with what you see. And of course, you can guess what happens. They eat the vegetables, drink the water, and then they look super healthy. Yeah, so I guess it's not like a fast the way t- people typically yeah, I mean, it's talk a, about it's it. It's a fast it from certain kinds of foods, Yeah, I guess. Have you found a website or something that describes like what this thing is? This is like a Christian fad. I guess this is why it's kitsch. It's because it's all over the place. It's on church websites. Yeah. It's got all these websites everywhere. Well, okay. So you're reading, you're rereading this story to me, and I'm thinking, what I think this ends up being is a way for Christians. In in some ways, it's an iteration of the prosperity gospel because it's like if you test, oh. you know, like your body will prosper. What's the prosperity gospel? So for the those prosperity gospel is a really longstanding doctrinal idea in American religion generally. It's often associated with charismatic and Pentecostal um, uh, practitioners, but I think you could argue that it all goes all the way back to like the early Puritan ideas about um, visible sainthood Mm. and stuff. But the idea is that if you live according to Christian principles, you will prosper. Or if you believe accordingly, you know, if you believe the right things about God— God will bless you. So you'll get, um, so you'll get money for good behavior, basically. Potentially, yeah. So it often gets reduced to that. I mean, I think there are versions of the prosperity gospel that are much more complex and mm. allow for things like suffering. But probably the most crass versions of it are like, you pray for this. If you believe rightly, God will give you a Mercedes or whatever. I see. And in some ways, I can see how— like scrolling through the websites of the the Daniel plan, the Daniel mm-hmm. fast, the Daniel diet, it's called different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see in in a way an effort to say like, look, I've honored God with my body in this way. God is going to prosper my body. Right. And it's got a biblical precedent, I suppose. Well, I'm looking, I'm looking at a particular website here um, of, it looks like some kind of mega church, which is doing, looks like as a church thing, they're doing a Daniel fast. Mm-hmm. They have a cookbook and a devotional you can download. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny to kind of compare the context of something like this too. You have 
mega church, you know, probably in the Midwestern place where this church is, is like they're ruling on high culturally. Yeah, very dominant versus. This is always, I mean, isn't this the source of so many pratfalls, so many foibles of of Christianity in our current contemporary age is like this idea that we have these roots, scriptural and, and sociological of like marginality or persecution. Yeah. And so there's this constant need to sort of reenact those roots right. or to, fe- re- to feel them again or to experience them. But it's it gets awkward if like if you're actually not persecuted. It almost puts you in a position where you have to act like you are or something like, um, like there's no reason why, like, why would a Christian do the Daniel diet? Is it just because eating vegetables and water? I mean, there should be an obvious benefit to that. Just being a vegetarian, essentially. Isn't sure. that what that is? Yeah. Like don't drink soda, Adventist. don't drink alcohol. Yeah. So, um, you know, there could just be an obvious thing there, but. I well, don't. I think in some ways it's, it's more fun to participate in this ancient story mm-hmm. and that's a, a Eating and drinking the way that they did is potentially like a window into right. experiencing this world. But as you bring up, there's a big difference between being like the culturally prominent population and the minority population in it, you know, especially when it comes to food, as right. we've been talking about this right. whole episode. Well, and I guess there's a kind of a spiritual kind of point there, which would be that the world offers us things, let's say symbolically, the rich food and wine and whatnot. But oh, we right. will we will yeah. forego that. But I guess I guess my sort of like uneasiness with the Daniel diet is like, well, you're not really foregoing anything. All of it is still available to you. It's not even a problem at all. And you and you usually have no moral problem taking in all of the world's goods. <laughs> right. It's just that you you're kind of- You still have an iPhone. Yeah, you still have your iPhone. You, you know, <laughs> you still have your, your job. You still have whatever you have and all of your entanglements, but you kind of do this one symbolic thing. And if you do it with your church somehow- You've like play acted some kind of thing. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's better than that for people who do it. Maybe I just have to do a Daniel fast with a group, and then I would know. But we should try it. We should try it <laughs> this summer. We're gonna do it. You first. Yeah. Well, I do think I will say that um, what what's fascinating to me about the the Daniel diet plan um, mm-hmm. angle versus traditional Christian fa- fasting is that they seem to have different goals. Oh, yeah. How so? So I guess when I think of the ascetic practice of fasting, I think of, you know, you are, there are many different reasons why someone might want to do that, but a popular reason would be intercessory, like, prayer, right? So, like, you're fasting in order to accomplish something spiritually, whereas this one seems to be explicitly about, you know, fasting in order to prove, like, that, you know, God's that God's instructions are being like prospered in you or something. So yeah. I don't know. I guess it, I haven't really thought it out very well because we do extensive research on the show. And <laughs> have we mentioned the I research? Done well, it's also enough. it's also a diet fad. I mean, it's like a it's like a health and fitness and yeah, you know, it's it's Feels aesthetic. Like the Atkins and, diet. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's like a Christian version. Like we don't do that. It's like we don't even call it vegetarianism, which is kind of what it sounds like. If you're only eating vegetables and no meat. It's yeah. like vegetarian plus. Well, and I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm going to defer to you on this, but I think the scriptures also talk a lot about feasting. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Feasting everywhere. It's like big fun time. A yeah. lot. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> well, so the Daniel fast, you know, try it out. See it. See it. See it online. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Um, but we'll let you know how it goes. We're not sure. This summer. I'll watch Leah do it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. That's what we're still calling our listeners, weirdos? Still doing it. I like it. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios by Aiden Tillman and executive produced by Troy Wellstead. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Roger Nam and to the Kern Foundation for sponsoring this season. And of course, to Trigger the Studio Dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye. Bye.